The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast Edinburgh Festival Fringe Series 2022. I hope you're doing well, hope you're looking after yourself, staying hydrated wherever you are in the world. I hope that you are doing what you need to do for you. Today I speak to Katie Jackson. Katie is a director and we talk about their latest play, Meeting Suzanne, which is currently playing at the Edinburgh Festival. All details are in the show notes of this episode. Katie and I chat the show. We talk about being an artist. We talk about what it means to be an artist. We talk about what happened for lots of artists during COVID, how you can change your plan from what you thought was going to happen and move into uh, something new. Katie also talks about being a non-binary director in this industry. Also just a little trigger warning for people. Um, at one point in the discussion Katie talks about when they were going to school and had to get the tube in London and um, and just the utter shit that they had to deal with on that daily commute and they talk about how their school dealt with that. Katie is absolutely brilliant and I know that you are going to really love this conversation. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. You can follow Louise and I on social media, Louise is at Ms Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram and I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. For today's episode, ooh, something kind of like strong and um, ooh, with a bit of fire, so maybe something cinnamony, um, yeah, something bold. That's what Katie makes me feel, something bold. And you know, a good old cup of tea can be the boldest thing you can have. <laughs> Sit back, relax and enjoy. Hi, I'm Katie. Welcome to the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so lovely to have you. <laughs> um, and let's just dive straight in, tell everybody about your show at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe 2022. 2022. Yeah, Here we are. Title, where we can go and see it, what time it's on at, etc. We'll obviously repeat that again. At <laughs> yeah. Day, yeah, let's yeah. do it. So it is called um, Visiting Cezanne. Um, it is on at the Hill Street Theatre in Newtown, um, and our start time is 14.50, so 10 to 3. Um, and a little caveat warning, it is a 90-minute show, not a 60-minute show, and people think it's a 60-minute show and then panic that they're going to miss their next show. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are going to come and see it, t- take some time. <laughs> it's a funny one, that, isn't it? I think because at the festival, like, so many people are so used to things being, like, 60 minutes, 50 mm. minutes, but then, like, most shows at the Trav are an hour and a half. Yeah. And obviously that, I do sometimes wonder if that's about kind of looking at them then going on tour to other places. Yeah. They probably don't want just an hour show, they want an hour and a half show. Um, But the festival, like, it's it's a tricky one. It is, it is. And I totally understand it from an audience's point of view, because like, especially if you're only up for a couple of days, you want to see as much as you can. And so you're desperately trying to streamline your day around these like hour blocks and being like, I've got to go over here, but at some point I should probably eat some food and maybe go to the loo and like... Exactly. And then you're like, oh, I'm in Newtown, but then I'm in Old Town, then I'm in Newtown, and then I'm in Old Town. And it's just like, yeah. yeah. And especially if you don't know Edinburgh very well or you don't know... The weird Edinburgh names for the different venues. Not like it's not school. It's at not all. on a grid. No. Like Edinburgh. It's also got a higher play. level and a lower level, which when I was nineteen and went to Edinburgh for the festival for the first time, got real confused by. <laughs> Flesh market close is a pillar. Yeah. Oh, not fun. Like you know, you get off the train, you're like, oh no, I need to go out. Flesh market. Yeah, we're with a suitcase full of five weeks worth of stuff, yeah, <laughs> <this is laughs> tools and everything, and yeah. Hard, hard. 
was yeah. not a good time. I mean, yeah, Edinburgh, you're beautiful, but get on the grid, man. Like, yeah. At least in Glasgow, it's like, boom, yeah. boom. if I miss my street, it's all right. I can turn back around super easily. Exactly. Not in Edinburgh. Not the case. <laughs> and also, like, you know, it's confusing when people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to assembly. Which assembly? Assembly halls, assembly rooms, assembly Roxy. Am I going to the Pleasance Courtyard? I'm in the Pleasance Dome. Like, and it's just. I know, and it's just that thing because years ago, it literally was just assembly. Yeah. Just Pleasance. Yeah. So everybody kind of was like, yeah, cool, you're down there, you turn left, mm. blah, blah, blah. Whereas now it's like, yeah. Why so many? Yeah. <laughs> Why so many in so many different places? <laughs> but all so many of the same names. Oh, so <laughs> anyway, back to visiting Suzanne. Yes. <laughs> so park my little uh, Sorry, love fest about the fringe. <laughs> come back to that. <laughs> um, yeah, so visiting Suzanne, it's... Um, it's been a, quite an interesting journey. So I actually joined the process really quite late in the day, actually. I sort of got on board about two months before we started rehearsals. So back in, like, June time, maybe May May time, um, just because I answered a call-out um, from friend of the po- podcast, Paula Nugent. <laughs> we love Paula. We love um, who was is the associate producer on it. Um, but she... And the writer-producer, Dwayne, who is a chap from Seattle, had originally uh, sort of started talking about this in 2019 with plans to bring it to the 2020 festival Mm. um, and had sort of been gearing up and been getting ready and been, like, reaching out to venues and stuff like that. And then, obviously, uh, the doors slammed shut on that one and they had to wait. And um, so some things had shifted by the time that they got to 2022. And um, so they needed to rethink what the casting was going to be, who the director was going to be, all of these things. Um, in fact, I don't know if they'd actually gotten a director uh, on board yet. But anyway, uh, so they put out a call out. I uh, replied being like, I'm interested. Here is my CV. And uh, we had a little Zoom interview for about an hour or so and I talked to them about how I like to work and they talked to me about how they like to work and we all sort of kind of shared what our uh, values were as theatre makers and they seemed to align, which is always nice. Always. <laughs> um, always pretty, pretty useful when that happens. Um, and, uh, and yes, so then we sort of got the cast together and we... Um, suddenly we're in rehearsals and then suddenly we're in tech and suddenly we're halfway through the festival. <laughs> know, right? It just like, it's like a train. It just rockets along, doesn't it? Yeah. Because at the start of August, you're like, oh my God, how am I going to make yeah. it to the end of this? Yeah. And then before you know it, it's like, oh. Yeah. Blink and you miss it kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Bless so tell him. us about the play. Tell us about um, what... The audience can expect. Yeah, so it's... Sorry, that was audience, as I, I have to, like, bark. <laughs> um, so it's uh, a play sort of set between two timelines. Um, so we start at the beginning, and it's kind of slightly alternate reality where Paul Cezanne, the French Impressionist painter, uh is, has not become as successful as he is in our reality. Okay. He's sort of vaguely known there are maybe a couple of paintings of his that get sort of carted around within the bubble of these are some other very famous artists and they owned this dude's work, mm. but he wasn't very important. Um, and he's sort of a curiosity to, like, art nerds, but no one's ever heard of him. And uh, then... You're in 2016 New York at this exhibition that these paintings of his are being shown at. And um, we meet Nora, played by Elaine McCurgow, friend of the podcast, Elaine McCurgow. And I know, I'm going to make it sound like I've sort of started some kind of PNN cult by putting on this show, which is not something I'd be opposed to. (laughs) Fascinated with the cult. I know, right? Give us 20 years and we will have a Netflix special. Oh my God. Um, and I mean, there's worse things to be you know, than ever. Than ever exactly. Is, yeah. An intersectional feminist cult. Sounds good Sign to me. Up. Yeah. Where's the contract? <laughs> A billion year contract right here. Yeah, it's all good, guys. We're not going up to space. <laughs> no. Well, maybe. Eventually. But we are intersectional. This you is are true. 
Um, yeah, so we meet. Sorry, I keep derailing myself. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's what happens in the podcast. I love it. It's yeah. warm, mate. It's great. It's lovely. Yeah. Um, so totally thinking about a PNN about cult. Like, yeah, alien PNN. I'm thinking about tattoos. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking like what our bougie sort of cult commune on the moon will look like. So. <laughs> oh my god. That's it. I'm Sorry, um, listeners, Casey and I are just sorry, we're just, just we're just riffing, this. guys. We're just yeah. trying out I some ideas for you. Yeah. So we meet Nora, her character Nora, in uh, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in 2016, and she is an artist, and she's never really had any success, and she sort of paints, commission things for people to make the money to pay her rent but for the most part like the work that she is passionate about nobody cares about Mm. and she's losing her like fire um and she's recently lost her mother and she's sort of in this kind of very despairing place and she gets sent back in time (laughs) (laughs) this is where the second timeline comes in um to paul cezanne's studio in the south of france in 1900 And he is in his 60s, he is not very well, and he uh, has been sort of not exactly driven out of Paris, but all of the other Impressionists within that kind of group of friends all stayed on in Paris and all got sort of selected for salons and exhibited together, and he was always very much um, pushed out, and he was kind of sort of almost class shamed because he came from a regional part of France and this is all actually true like mm-hmm. um he came from a regional part of France didn't get to go to like the um fancy art college in Paris and stuff like that he taught himself a lot of his own uh technique and he developed his own technique and it was very specific to him and it wasn't conducive with the values that a lot of the other impressionists were working with so they Mm -hmm. kind of were like oh Paul he's a bit of a weirdo isn't he oh he's disappeared back to the south of France who cares um so we find him in this place in his 60s and he's losing the ability to care as well and um she desperately is trying to get back to her timeline and he's like I don't care about anything why should I also care about you (laughs) (laughs) and uh over the course of them sort of spending a couple of days trying to figure out how to get her home, they kind of manage to reignite each other's and their own love for what they do um, and kind of, yeah, remember why they love what they do. Mm. So it's sort of about trying to reclaim your artistry for yourself. Yeah when there's no evidence of any external validation or anyone caring about you or noticing how hard you work, like, how do you dig deep and find your own reasons for yeah. carrying on? Um, which was pretty prescient after the last couple of yeah. years. <laughs> just, yeah, just thinking about that, you know, I'm sure there's so many artists of whatever background listening and probably people in other fields as well that are kind of going, yeah, Mm. I really get that. Yeah, yeah. And it might be more prevalent, I guess, for us in the arts in that sense of, you know, it, it does feel like... it. Do, I can only speak for myself, I shouldn't speak for other people, but, like, for me, it, it is absolutely intrinsically in who I am. Like, mm. I can't imagine it not being. Like, um, never really wanted to do anything else. Mm. I mean, you find other things that you're reasonably all right yeah. at, Because right? welcome to the freelance lifestyle. You need to figure it out yeah. as you go. But um, the the fire for it definitely can come and go. Yeah. Because it's a hard industry. Yeah. And it's brutal. It and it brutal. is. And it is completely, like, so much of it is self-reliance. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was something that I really, like, when lockdown first hit, it was, I went down a real sort of rabbit hole of self-analyzing, like, all of these. And I'd been in the industry for, like, six and a half years by then, predominantly predominantly as a stage manager, but um, starting to move into directing. But as an assistant director, like, I'd always been responsible to a production mm. and producers and performers and audience members and stuff like that. And I'd sort of never really noticed that I was trying to do it for myself. Mm. Um, 
And then all of those producers and those writers and those directors and those actors and those audience members were taken away. And it was just me. And I was like, oh, crap, I need to know why I like this. And I'd never had the time to sit down and actually analyse mm. what was I doing this for. Um, and suddenly having no external validation, having no one who, like, was expecting me to turn up at a certain time to do a certain thing was really, like... It was like having all of your strings cut and the puppet just falls to the floor yeah. <laughs> in, like, a slump. Yeah. Um and I had to, yeah, figure out what it was and then took, like, quite a significant hard right turn and applied to the MFA uh, at Royal Conservatory of Scotland, the um, contemporary classical and contemporary text one, uh, which I then got into and then have, that's sort of what's brought me up to Scotland. But I sort of had to... I, that was my one shot. I was like, I, I'm going to double down on this right now and apply for this master's degree and if I do not get in I'm leaving the industry okay I don't know what to do I was looking at like maybe becoming a counselor I was looking at maybe becoming like I don't know like something in a solicitor's office I didn't I didn't know but like an office admin kind of job where as a stage manager I knew my skills would sort of translate over to that but I was like yeah if I don't get into this course that's I'm, I'm out I can't mm. there's nothing to tether me to it anymore yeah. But luckily I did get into the course. <laughs> and, and so here I am. And so it's fine. Um, it's, a big, it's a big question though, right? Mm. It's like, you know, we kind of look at things and we're like, I don't make a decision soon. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I wouldn't have been able to financially afford like being unemployed for as long as the <laughs> pandemic ended up going on for. Yeah. Um, and like my mental health just wasn't going to be able to take it. Such a shift, right? Being a stage manager, as you say, you've yeah. got such a responsibility, and I always kind of like, I'm always in awe of the crew, and mm. I think as an actor, you absolutely should be. Like, you know, without you, nothing would mm. go ahead. You know, we there's certain actors who are like, yes, but without me, <laughs> and blah blah blah. But you're the ones that keep the show running. You're the ones that make sure everything is um, there and ready for us, so that we don't have that mm. that on us you're also the ones that we tend to come to when there's an issue especially if you're out on tour and you, yeah you know um but that idea of like in a, a perpetual when you're on that cycle and you're going from job to job to mm. job to then having nothing yeah is huge yeah because i mean there's actors who if they're super lucky they're in the small percent you know of the continuously go from job to job to job most of us have blips in between and all yeah. of that so we are a little bit more used to that kind of going okay cool nothing yeah. for a couple of months do my thing move yeah. around it but you know for you that's like that's so huge and I'm sure there's loads of people that were like yeah in the same boat. yeah and it was a bit of a like and it was a shame as well because I was uh I was assistant director on when lockdown hit uh, on an opera um and we were a week away from our first show <laughs> when Boris was like, mm, bye bye. Um, and, uh, and it was really hard to see the singers who were so nervous. I remember them being so, because it's their lungs. Mm. All we knew was that it's your respiratory systems. Mm -hmm. We didn't know much else about it. And they were like, my lungs are my life. Like they're, yes. everyone's lungs are their lives, but like their ability to use their breath and their voice the way that they do is their entire livelihood and so they were terrified but god love them they were still coming into rehearsals mm -hmm. they were taking public transport i mean by the last few days of rehearsals it was like us and the people who empty the bins like <laughs> in the yeah. street it was london was completely dead um but it was also like that momentum and we were trying to keep pushing because also it was a small independent um, opera company made by two women. One of them was the director, one of them was the producer and they'd funded all the, it all by like fundraising all of the money themselves to put mm -hmm. it on. And they were like, we can't stop until we are forced to because we have no insurance to cover that kind of cost loss. Yeah. Um, so we are just going to keep going and just going to keep going until somebody just legally tells us that we yeah, can't. Yeah, yeah. And so we were all still like full 
killed her going at it and then just won. <laughs> Okay. And it was just, yeah, it was really surreal um, and not very pleasant for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting. It was not any way in which I would wish to have that time, um, but it was valuable to have that time, I think, for people to sit and take stock of what it is that their values are and what it is that they care about, and what sacrifices am I willing to make for this aspect of my life to go in this direction, because I will have to lose things from this aspect of my life and just let those sort of float off in the breeze if I'm definitely going down this path. Mm -hmm. Um, And to actually have a moment to take stock of all that when, you know, usually in the creative industry you are going to see shows because you need to be keeping on top of what people are making, you need to be emailing people, you need to be trying to make your own shows, you need to be writing, you need to be looking at how you self-produce, you need to be making contacts, you need to be going to this event in case you might meet this person, you know, like you don't actually get to sit down Mm -mm. and think about why you're doing these things. You're doing these things because you have to. Yeah. Um, well, why do I have to? And then you have yeah, to go yeah, yeah. do the sort of steps backwards from that. Um, so, yeah, I think a, a valuable thing maybe to have come out of it, but not a cost that anyone should have had to have paid yeah. for it. Unfortunately, the system that we live in uh, sort of benefits from us not having any time to think mm-hmm. um, and therefore perpetuates... Uh, a set of values and pressures in which we don't think. <laughs> I know, and the promise of the industry and how we'll come back and it'll mm. be better and there will be... Bollocks. It was never going to come back it better. Was, it was never going to come back better. It was always going to come back worse because money. <laughs> like, yeah. it yeah. was always going to be money. And I had friends who were coming back from the sort of crew and technical aspects of uh, shows in uh, late 2020 and then obviously that was put a stop and then trying to come back again in 2021 and so many producers who were going to equity the actors union and the stage managers union and going well back to have said that we can make this special deal with their members so are you going to let us make this special deal with your members and equity going like oh oh okay well if that's what back to have said then maybe we should think about it and then those producers going to back to and being like so equity have just said and just playing unions off against each other playing other people off each against each other going and saying oh if we can only sell um five shows a week instead of eight shows a week then we're only going to pay people five eighths of their wage but you're already millionaires yeah so when you're a millionaire just because you're not actively making more of your millions doesn't mean that you can stop paying people who aren't. Exactly. But they were. Because <laughs> they're dicks and they can. Yeah, and they get away, they get away with it. Yeah. Um, and, like, it's, it's really disheartening to see how easily they were allowed to get away with it. Because I think it could have been an opportunity to change some things, to change the racism, to change the classism, to change all of the elitism that exists in theatre, and there is a lot of it. And I benefit from a lot of it as a white person, for sure, um, and have historically. And I don't want that to be the case for future generations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it is, I think it is our responsibility to be allies for people who are continuing to get screwed after this opportunity for change was not taken. taken. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. I mean, that that whole conversation probably, because I haven't seen Visit in Cezanne yet, which mm. I'm hoping to do next week. Um, but it, it feels like this conversation that we're having, you know, that idea of, like, how we move forward, how what our industry looks like, what different parts of our industry look like, and how that then has an impact on the people that are part of that. Mm. feels very akin to what is going on in the play. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, it's not so... It's not exactly a theme, but there is a kind of insinuation that um, Cezanne, as a male artist, had a lot of... Better and obviously because he was mostly painting in the nineteenth century, um, had significantly more opportunities than any female artist. In mm-hmm. fact, there's actually only one female impressionist artist who is given a single name check in the play because she was one of the only ones there. Okay. Um, 
And it's not exactly something that is spoken about that Nora's femaleness is an attributing factor to her lack of success, but it is undeniably true to anyone who has existed in the arts and has worked in the arts that her femaleness will be an attributing factor to her the extra work she will have to have done to be where she is now. Um, And it's, you know, yeah, we all, we all have our stuff and it's not about isms, but it is an undeniable truth that most people who are not white men, middle-class white men, especially, will have had to do extra work. Upper Upper middle-class white men, yes. Um, Will have... Mm. um, (laughs) Who, look, you know, everyone has a hard time. This world is hard and the systems are unfair and... Because the patriarchy doesn't serve anyone. No, that's the thing. That's that's the thing. thing. And it lies to everyone. It just lies to them in different ways. Sorry, everybody, I thought the heater was on. <laughs> I was like, that's ridiculous. Um, no, it does, exactly, mm. yeah. And it's, I'm very aware when we say that sometimes you, because we do say, oh, white men, but actually, you know, if you're from a really, really, really working class background and you're mm. a white man, there's already, yeah, there's already huge, stuff against you. Already. Huge amounts of stuff against you, now, Jesus. If you're a person of colour yeah. from a very, very working class background, there's even more on top of yeah. that. But I think that, you know, just acknowledge that when, um, particularly when we talk about, and yeah. as you see, everybody's got their issues. Exactly. And, you know, it doesn't always matter if we're, what class you're from. No. So, but it's like there was a but viral... there's always a, there's a little bit more, it's that thing, if you are upper middle class and you are having some problems, maybe even mental health problems, mm. the likelihood of you getting treatment... Yeah. And is, being believed... Is much quicker. Yeah. And also you may have the money to be able to afford to go private, which most people can do. Yeah. And at the moment, our NHS... Yeah. God bless them. Oh, fuck it. That's a whole other... Yeah. (laughs) But, like, you know, our our current government, and I mean the UK government, have systematically underfunded the NHS. Yeah, absolutely stripped it to its bones. Yeah. And um, because they want to privatise it because they want to make money. Yeah. Well, they want their pals to make money. Yeah, and them. <laughs> so that they shares, can, like, yeah, you know, they'll have uh, shares and they'll have uh, oh, I'm on the offshore. Of such and such yeah. My, um, yeah, my Switzerland account. Exactly. Is it Switzerland? Switzerland. Luxembourg, I think, as well, yeah. quite a lot. Cayman um, Islands. Cayman Isles, love uh, that. Oh, they love it over there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, like, it is that thing. So it's, you know, just always that kind of reiteration. But the privilege that they have is so yeah. much more. And they don't even fucking no. realise. And it was, there was a viral video, gosh, it must have been about three or four years ago. And I think it was in America, actually. But it was some teenagers stood in line. And uh, I think it was their, like, gym coach or something. And they were going to run, like, a 100-metre race. And the gym coach was like, right, if you are a person of colour, take a step back. Yes. If you come from a single parent household, take a step back. Yeah. If you have been on free school meals, take a step back. And then, like, by the end of it, it was, like, four white kids stood on the front line and all of these other students from, like, ethnic minorities, from socioeconomic backgrounds that weren't as privileged, from all of these things. And then they were like, great, now run the race. Yeah. <laughs> and then just, like, in one 30-second clip, you exactly show yeah. what, what it is what it can look like from the outside. And I was like, God damn it. (laughs) And the thing is, I was like, why aren't people in power watching this and changing? But of course, they they could watch it if they wanted to. And they probably did. They just didn't care. They just 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 don't don't care. care. And it is as simple as that sometimes. It really is. Yeah. And we like to think in the arts that we're so open and liberal and we're like, yeah. Yeah. But the elitism and yeah. like if you have money, you can make art. You can go to Edinburgh for a month and mm. not need to worry about the, whether your show sells yeah. at all or not because you're totally fine. And plus, mummy and daddy or whoever mm. are um, paying for you to stay up there and somewhere really lovely. So yeah. you're getting a good night's sleep. You're not having to share a room with yeah. Them, so Edinburgh, we need fucking chat about the prices and stuff. Like, Jesus, Jesus yeah. Christ. This but year is just carnage. The travel lodge, somebody told me was, oh. 240 quid or something a night? The fucking travel yeah. lodge. Yeah, yeah. 
What the fuck? Yeah. I, I heard somebody got quoted five grand for the month. In my mouth. That's like a year. That's like a year's rent somewhere else. Yeah. What the hell is disgusting. that? It's disgusting. Yeah. Anyway, so talking about the cast and creative team mm. of a Visit and Suzanne, you are mainly um, female non-binary team. Yeah. Pretty, yeah, much. pretty much. Yeah. Um, myself and my stage manager are non-binary. Um, Paula, our associate uh, producer, is female. Uh, two of the cast are female. And then we've got two cast who are male and the writer-producer is male. So actually we are more female yeah. non-binary weighted. Which is great. Chef's kisses. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> chef's kisses. It's like, yes, bring it, bring it. That's what yeah. we need. And it's such an interesting dynamic, I think, in a rehearsal room when that mm. happens. So you found that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, especially because I'm younger than all of my cast as well. Um, but it's been quite... They've been lovely and they are very accepting and... Um, there's no like queer phobia or anything that I've experienced in the room at all. Um, but it is always a bit of a thing for young people who also are assumed to be female mm -hmm. um, and people who are female um, of, oh, you're, you're going to make this happen? You're going to be the voice that leads this group? Yeah. Really? What's that going to look like? Yeah. Oh, you've got all of these funny ideas about how we don't do table work. What's that? Like? Oh, you want to, like, yeah. And so it's just been a bit of a, and these guys really kind of jumped jumped on the bandwagon because I don't have a particularly um, commercial directing process um, of we sit around the table for a week and we talk about the play. Then week two, we stand on our feet and we block the play. And then week three, we run the play and then we go into tech. Like that doesn't benefit my work at all. Um, and I don't think it benefits my actors either or any actors really. Um, but uh, for a young person to be like, hey, you know all of those things that you're used to doing? <laughs> Throw them in the bin. They're not happening in this room. Like... <laughs> Was, uh, was something that I was very nervous about going into this room. Um, and I think directors do get nervous, especially female and, like, gender non-conforming uh, and trans directors get very nervous that they are not going to be taken seriously. Um, and I was sort of having to have quite serious conversations with myself the week before we started rehearsals, being like, what, what can I tangibly do if there is, like... <laughs> Not exactly a revolt because I'm not like <laughs> the monarch of this rehearsal room. Yeah. It's not the French Revolution, Katie. Calm down. Yeah. But like, what happens if they don't want to work with me, but want to work against me? Mm. What 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 can I do for myself to keep myself safe in that room, mm. um, and keep myself feeling like I am valid in that room? Yeah. Because as much as actors, people always say like, oh, actors need a lot of support from their directors, but directors need a lot of support from their actors because otherwise we're just, just talking <laughs> into yeah. a room full of people who don't want to listen to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's, it's quite a scary thing to think about going into a room where you're not going to have a nice cohesive group that all want to work together and make something great with sort of values of sharing and equal sort of non-hierarchical, non-judgmental processes um, where there is going to be somebody who goes, no, actually, I think my voice should be the one who's loudest in the room at all times. Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't always end up being a male voice, but proportionally it is. <laughs> um, and how do I, as someone who was socialised female as a child and therefore told to be quiet when the men are speaking. How do I unlearn that for mm -hmm. myself? Yeah. And still working from a non-hierarchical place, claim my right to be in the room and stay in the room. Yeah. Because that is not something that one gets taught. Yeah, definitely not. Um, and, it's really you know. interesting you brought up about age, though, as well, because I think in our industry we have this thing, especially... Um, those of us who are who are female um, and non-binary, 
that as we get older, there's that kind of sense of like we almost kind of disappear, mm. um, and we become or we certainly feel like we've become invisible. Yeah. Um, because either our stories aren't being told, or we're not seeing that representation on screen or stage. Um, but then there's also there is also the opposite of it, and we and we call ageism a lot. I think in this industry, especially when it comes to, um, females and non-binary, um, people that. You know, once you hit 60 or something, you're like, ageism, you know, we're not yeah. part of it and all of that. But we never really think about that conversation of when it is a young person in a room yeah. taking charge, quote-unquote, yeah. of that room um, and how that reaction goes, especially when you have older actors in the room. Yeah. Because um, there's a part of me that's like, you can't call fucking ageism. Mm. when you're then not allowing someone just because they're 25 or 26 yeah. to then lead the room or facilitate the space and however they are going to facilitate it because that's ageism. Yeah, yeah. And I remember also, like, it was really interesting in my sort of previous carnation as a stage manager, uh, so much of my training was about that kind of you are seen and not heard. Yeah. You are a silent facilitator. You do not have ideas you do not have a say. You are there to action what other people want mm -hmm. and you are not allowed to argue about how it gets actioned. And that was like my training in a drama school that I got a degree. I paid for a degree to be trained to shut up and fuck off. <laughs> it's so mental. Yeah. Like, I paid you thousands of pounds yeah. for that. Thanks. Yeah. To, to tell me more of what I already thought about myself. <laughs> <laughs> So, and so then as a director, I also had to like strip away all of those notions of I'm allowed to be in a rehearsal room, but I'm not allowed to talk in the rehearsal room and I'm not allowed to have ideas in a rehearsal room and I'm not allowed to contribute to the process. Yeah. And I had to get over all of that stuff before I could be like, oh, now I'm going to lead a process. And then you go, but I'm a gender non-conforming person under 30. So nobody's going to listen to me as well for that reason. And it's just like there are so many barriers that yeah. a lot of a lot of middle class white men do not have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They just have always had their voices championed. And it is tiring to explain to them many, many times a week that that is not everyone's experience. Yeah. And then you get like, I remember when I first told and he is a very good director and I respect him very much as, as a practitioner and he is a good person but he said a shitty thing and these two things can coexist absolutely um, but we're all humans we all make mistakes as yeah well. you learn from that mistake exactly and it was about three years ago and I was still identifying as female no maybe it was four years ago I was still identifying as female and he was a director who I'd worked with I'd been his stage manager and I said to him um, that I was looking at going into directing. And he said, oh, well, that would be a really easy time for you to do it right now because of your gender. <laughs> and I was just like, I just, I didn't, I, I don't think I actually replied. I don't think I said anything because I was so shocked by how brazen he was about this, like, objectively wrong opinion. Because yeah. <laughs> he's like, I can't get it I'm not getting as many jobs because I'm yeah. sure you're still getting plenty. Yeah. Of them. Oh yeah. He's doing just fine. Like, and he's great, and he's works really, really hard, and so he's he's built his career very carefully. And if he found out now that I'm non-binary, I think he'd shit his brains out of his nose because he'd be like, "Oh my god, this person's gonna steal all my work. I might as well just die." <laughs> like... <laughs> this is it, right? But this is the thing about I don't think they quite get. Because there's the, that element of fear mm. that they're going to lose their space. Yeah. We're, like, we're not asking you. We're to not move asking for your space to be. Yeah. To, to, to leave the table, we're asking you just to make a bit more space. Yeah. At like the table. don't. I don't need a slice of your pie. Like your pie is your pie. I just need you to take your pie out of the oven so I can bake mine. Yeah. Exactly. That's all it is, pal. Calm down. That's really, all it. Go is. get some ice cream. Put it on your pie. <laughs> Grab a spoon. <laughs> you knock yourself out while I do my shit over yeah. here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, and it is that. And also the thing is, you know, it's unfortunate for men our age that they just happen to be born into the generation who are under direct fire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a shame for them. It is. 
I get that it's hard, especially because the first 20, 25 years of their life, they weren't under direct fire, yeah, so yeah. they kind of got used to that. Yeah, they're like, they're um, like in the patriarchal lifestyle. Yeah, yeah they're like, the yeah. uninvestigated patriarchal yeah. lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, their predecessors had thousands of years of not being under direct fire because they either were actively putting everyone else under it mm-hmm. or just didn't have to think about how other their peers were. Yeah. Um, but cry me a river. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, just a little bit, yeah. cry me a river. Yeah. Because... Um, my mother and my mother's generation and my friends who were sort of between the ages of my mother's generation and mine all had to deal with a lot of bullshit. Mm. I had to deal with a fair amount of it because, I mean, you know, growing up in a capital city as a teenage female-like presenting person, it's not a very safe space. Um, capital city, where are you? London. London. And so I was like 11 years old to 18 years old, taking the tube on my own to school every morning. Um, lots of sexual assault and harassment, which started about the age of 13, probably. Um, but was totally the norm. Yeah. Like my, I had a girl in my form class who in year seven, so 11 years old, um, was like stalked by an Old, like a grown man on the way to school and like yeah. got into the school gates and that's how she got away from him um, and we were given mandatory self-defense classes in my school because we were in a central area in London and it was such a high incident of assault in the student body that wow. they were like we need to teach these children how to like at least throw a punch <laughs> it's just that thing right like we need to teach the children. No, yeah. we need to teach the, the other people are the ones that need to be held accountable. Yeah, the the predators, whatever you will, whatever term you want to use. Yeah, for them, like they they are the ones. Yeah, yeah. I like when I was thirteen. When I was like groped on that tube carriage at thirteen, I hadn't even developed secondary sex characteristics yet. Like, I wasn't menstruating. I didn't need to wear a bra. Like, I hadn't really started going through puberty. I looked like a child. And I was the one who was given a rape alarm for Christmas. And I was the one who was told not to walk down dark alleys at night. Yeah. And it was stuff like that. that I was like, why am I having to keep myself safe? Why, why, is, why are they putting the onus on these children to remove themselves from situations, those situations being the street. <laughs> um, and that situation of, oh, getting to school. Yeah, being, being forced to go to uh, education and God. then not being allowed to go via public access areas. Um, yeah, like just a madness that that is. And it's, I mean, maybe starting to change a little bit. I don't think it is fast enough my best friend is a teacher in a big big um state school down in south london and she is she's spoken to me about feeling uncomfortable from male students like wow older male students who are not being educated properly wow and she is intimidated by them as the adult in the room who is there to teach them to impart knowledge to them she feels unsafe sometimes in that, in her working environment. Yeah. And I'm like, what about their peers? And yes, like, we do talk a lot in relation to teenage boys and how they their behaviour impacts on teenage girls, but it's also about how their behaviour impacts on the older women around them and the women who they will meet in their future when they are going out into the world. Yeah. Sorry, this isn't about the play <laughs> or the fringe. I'm just it's totally, no. It's, it's, it happens on the PNN podcast. We just like you know, but they're important conversations, and they stem mm. from like lots of things that we're talking about. And this, you know, like th- that idea that men have had not idea because it's actually true mm. that they have had an easier, in some cases, walk in the world. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, we're talking about. Suzanne and the idea of it had he not become as famous as he is. Yeah. But you know, he's still getting work in the alternate yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Right. There's still so, a couple of paintings up on that art gallery wall. So, yeah. You know, it's not like he's like a no one mm. in that sense. I mean, I don't think anybody's a no one. But, yeah. Um, that kind of cultural reference mm. point of view, and you know, all the things that we're talking about is why, even in that alternate, alternate world, he still got that place. Yeah. Because we can't avoid it because it's so embedded in our society. And it's like, unless we have the conversations like this. Yeah. And I do realise a lot of the time that, you know, all you beautiful listeners are, like, with us. So mm. it's not like... I think also sometimes it's good for everybody to rehear it and be like, yeah. 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 That is, it, if, if it happened to you, it is valid because it's happened to others. Yeah. Um, and it is this, like, weird kind of... I keep talking about cults, but there's like cult of silence that we have mm. been in. And that's what I mean when I talk about young sort of people who are socialized as female and female identifying pe- yeah. children who are taught to be quiet. Yeah. And it is so we don't grasp on the system. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> to each other. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh God, it's fucking, it's a fucking fucker. <laughs> it's I so clever. I mean, God almighty, they tied it up with a little goddamn ribbon. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. What, let's jump back mm. to visiting Cezanne. Yeah. What would you like your audience to think, feel, what do you hope when they leave? Mm, I think it's, so what I've really enjoyed investigating for myself through this play is like that concept of what do I consider to be making it in inverted Mm, commas mm. like for Cezanne he really really cares about being remembered he really really needs to know that his work will be exhibited after his death that all of that graft that all of the things that he gave up culminate in people remembering him Mm. which is essentially just a fear of death which is fine Everyone's afraid of death. Um, or at least, you know, 99% of the people uh, in this world are afraid of death. Um, what do I consider my equivalent? And I don't think it is being famous or, like, winning an Olivier or being the artistic director of the National. Like, those would all be very lovely things that I would very much enjoy. But do how much of this work am I going to allow to be for external validation? And how much do I need to save for me to be like, "Mm, I did a good job there. Yeah, Yeah. that was well done me. Little pat on my back from me to me. Um, Of, I did this because I love it. I enjoy it. I'm good at it. It brings other people happiness to be in a space where my work is giving them something to reflect on. Like, how can it be a service to others rather than through the service of others, I get recognition? Yeah. Um, And I would invite audience members coming to see it to consider what their thing that they are trying to feed in themselves is and how they can do that in the healthiest way for them. Mm. Because some people do want that recognition, and, and, it, and it, if it comes from a healthy place, that's great. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that, you know, condemning people going, I want to be famous. Cool. That's awesome. Do what you want to do to get there. Um, but know what your reasons are for it. Yeah. Because apart from anything else, knowing what your reasons for anything is will help serve your way of choosing your path to it mm-hmm. um so yeah i think that's yeah the main the main goal with this one yeah no i think that's really important i think i, I don't think it matters what um field you're in either about that mm. idea of success yeah it is sort of a universal thing like yeah. my i have lots of friends who aren't in the arts and they they are brilliant at their jobs but you know are they getting like nourished by it? Mm. How do we self-nourish through what our what by what we put out into the world? How can it positively feed back and give us something nice, so that it can be sort of like a beautiful virtuous cycle? Because mm. I think that's how we defeat these systems by doing everything from a place of love and kindness. We can sort of va- like finally chip away at yeah. 
the messages of no, you have to do it for money. No, you have to do it to be the best. No, you have to do it to be wealth. Like whatever it is. Um, yeah. So if, if it's coming from a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle, that's, I think the dream for me. Great. I love it. It reminds everybody where they can see, visit in Suzanne. Yep. So it is at Hill Street Theatre, which is, um, at 19 Hill Street in Newtown of Edinburgh. And we are on at, uh, 1450 and we run for 90 minutes so we usually come down at about um 1620 so 420 in the afternoon fabulous um katie mm-hmm. i don't know if you listen to the podcast i do you do obsessively so, <laughs> <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> um, so you know the next question that i'm gonna ask yeah you. Um, oh, but before we do that, actually, um, tell everybody where they can follow you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of that. And, you know, if people want to have a little meeting with this wonderful director, let's do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I am on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is the same on both. So it is underscore Katie, K-A-T-I-E, underscore Jax, J-A-X. Um, my Instagram is private, but uh, I will except most follows because <laughs> I'm just a social media whore. <laughs> Love it. It's private, but literally just because I want you to have to work for it. <laughs> do you want to do it? Will I request you? Play the game. Yeah. I love it. Um, okay, great. So everybody now knows that. Um, so yeah, final question mm-hmm. of the podcast. Katie Jackson. Here they are. Here they are. Um, what does persistent and nasty mean to you? Hmm, yeah, I think for me, persistent is like doing the thing that you love when you're not given permission um, and finding how you permit yourself, like, if no one is going to permit me, how do I claim my own permission for myself? Because if you love something, you have a right to care about it and enjoy it. And as long as you're not hurting anybody by, I mean, some cannibals <laughs> love cannibalism. Maybe don't do it non-consensually. <laughs> um, but, you know, like if, if you love something, then with grace and with kindness to other people and by not trying to avoid taking things from others to get it for yourself, um, give yourself permission to pursue it. Um, And then I think with nastiness, it's just, yeah, be the loud person. Be, if you want to speak up, speak up. And if if that makes you disagreeable or unpleasant or nasty or whatever, fine. That can be their very subjective opinion of you. Um, But it doesn't have to be your opinion of yourself. And... It doesn't have to be the opinion that you are told to have about other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. I love it. I love it so much. Um, Katie Jackson, thank you so much for joining me today. And listeners, um, get yourselves along to see their show, uh, Visiting Suzanne. So, until next time, lovely listeners. Stay, stay nasty. nasty. Yeah.